Hi, well, it's great to be with you this uh, today and to open up God's Word. We're going to continue looking at uh, the Christmas story, looking at that passage we've just heard from in Matthew chapter 2. Let's pray as we... Oh, I forgot to put on the lapel mic, so we'll start again. There we go, that's better. Well, it's great to be with you today uh, and to open up God's Word together. We're going to continue looking at, I guess, what we'd call the Christmas story as we look at that passage from Matthew 2. Uh, so let's pray and ask for God's help as we, uh, as we hear his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the word that you've given us. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. And as we ponder a, a tale that we know well, help us to see uh, what it shows us about Jesus. Please direct us to him. Help us to love him more and serve him more faithfully. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, this is a really well-known passage, and it's been the basis of one who knows how many Christmas pageants and displays. At least the, the first part of the, the narrative has been. Uh, the Slaughter of the Innocents doesn't get so much uh, attention in the Christmas pageants. Uh, the whole story is very familiar. The star appears, uh, the magi come, there's some kind of Eastern court officials or advisors or astrologers. Since the 16th century, the word's been translated in lots of English translations as wise men. They've taken a long journey, we're not sure exactly where from. Anyway, when they arrive, uh, they trigger the threat from Herod. And so we read about him and his barefaced deception. He tries, he tries to manipulate them to get the information that he wants. But when they reach the house uh, where Jesus is, they open their tre treasures and give gifts. And then they make a secretly escape back to their own country. When, when Joseph is then warned to take his family to Egypt, uh, and he avoids then the what's called the slaughter of the innocents as Herod tries to make sure that he's removed the threat of an alternative king. And it's no wonder as you think about that story that it's spawned so many embellishments and speculations. Uh, it tends to get mixed in with the shepherds and the angels in Luke. So there are plenty of Christmas pageants and when they all arrive at the same time, uh, traditionally, this has been the event that's the basis of Epiphany, but there's actually no evidence that the Magi arrived you know, only 12 days after Jesus' birth. It was probably months after Jesus' birth. Notice Herod has boys two and younger killed. You know, he thinks that could be, it could be some time since his target has been born. Oh, we, we shouldn't imagine this has all happened you know, on the night or in a couple of weeks within Jesus' birth. In lots of carols, the Magi become kings of the East. They're given names, uh, you know, the traditional names, Caspar, Melchior, Balthazar. Um, perhaps the, people say they come from Arabia or Persia or in India. There's even a Chinese tradition that a very famous astrologer in the Han Dynasty, Lu Xiang, discovered a king star and then disappeared from the imperial court. And so there's a tradition that he was the Magi. Uh, people have wondered what the star is. Chrysostom, the famous 4th century preacher, said it wasn't a star, but 
a miraculous guide like a pillar of cloud that was in the Old Testament often associated with the angel of the Lord. In recent centuries, there's been suggestions it was a supernova or a planet or some planetary conjunction. Just this year, the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn a few days ago revived the idea that that was the star of the Meiji, uh, a suggestion made famous in the 17th century by the astronomer Johannes Kepler. The gifts that they give are proper for a king. Myrrh for anointing oil, frankincense as perfume, gold, the precious metal. That's been interpreted as being prophetic, that gold is a symbol of Jesus' kingship. Frankincense and incense is symbolic of his priesthood. Myrrh and embalming oil is symbolic of his death. Chrysostom, again, contrasts these gifts, which he says are the right gifts for the incarnate God, with the gifts that the Jews gave at the temple. And there's been all sorts of speculation about what happened to that gold that was given to Jesus. And so it's one of those parts of the, the Bible that attracts embellishments and speculations, all of which can be a bit distracting. So, so let's focus on why this is in Matthew's Gospel. What's it doing there? How does it help us understand Jesus? I think the first thing to notice is that this is a passage that's built around three Old Testament quotations. In verse 6, there's a quotation from Micah 5. In verse 15, there's a quotation from Hosea 11. Then in verse 18, there's a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And so this all underlines that this is God's plan for Jesus. It's been mapped out and prophesied before it takes place. And of course, that's one of the reasons why human opposition can't possibly stop what God has now started. And around those quotations, we see the first reactions to Jesus and such a stark contrast. And all of this is a foreshadowing. It's an anticipation of what Jesus will do and what will happen to him. You know, movies and novels often have a hint early on that sets up your expectations of what will happen in the rest of the narrative. So, you know, early on in a movie, someone mentions that he has a gun hidden in his desk. And as soon as he says that, you know there's going to be a shootout in the study. And you wonder, is, it going to, is the gun going to kill him or save him? And so Matthew 2 uses the coming of the Magi to direct us to, to what it is we should look for in the rest of Jesus' life. And so most obviously, it shows us that Jesus is the promised King of Israel. He's born in Bethlehem. The, the town of David. The Magi arrive in Jerusalem looking for a newly born king. And when Herod gathers his advisors and asks, where would that be? Where would the king be born? They confirm Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Now, some people have thought that this is just creative Christian interpretation of Micah 5.2. But we've actually got good evidence that uh, early Jewish teachers did believe 
that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We've got ancient literature that speaks that way. In John's Gospel, it turns out that one of the reasons people give for not accepting that Jesus is the Messiah is that they think that he comes from Galilee and not from Bethlehem. And so the, uh, the, the scribes and the priests here take a section from Micah chapter 5. And if you go back and look at that passage, which, which we read, you see Micah is speaking to Israel in the middle of the judgment of God. They're, they're being invaded by Babylon and destroyed by Babylon. The royal house of David will come to an end. But in the midst of that, God says to them that there is hope. So Micah chapter 5 verse 2, You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will reign over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. It's a great promise of hope for Israel in the midst of the horror of the exile. And so when the priests and the scribes are asked by Herod, where will the Messiah come from? They give a kind of combination summary of Micah 2 verse, Micah 5 verse 2 and verse 4, um, kind of put that together and say, um, in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, from out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And of course, in the Bible, kings often are called shepherds and King David is the great shepherd king. So, so here's God's plan beginning. The new true king of Israel has been born. And so as we go on reading what happens to Jesus, we need to remember that everything he does, he does as the king, as the Messiah. It may not fit our expectations, just the way the Magi thought that uh, he'd be born in Jerusalem, but that's who he is. Well, God's plan is also for a new people of Israel. Uh, Jesus' birth is, is, sounds a lot like Moses' birth. Remember the story, Moses being born and Pharaoh's going to try and kill him, uh, kill all the babies. Uh, God protects him. Remember that story. Of course, Moses was not only saved as a baby. God used Moses to save Israel from Egypt. And that's what the quote from Hosea is talking about in verse 15. Matthew quotes Hosea 11 verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I rescued Israel. And now it's happening again. And this repeated pattern, like the rescue from Egypt all over again, shows us God's plan. Uh, th this time, uh, the baby is protected in Egypt, but then brought out from Egypt. 
And so we're meant to see that Jesus is the new people of God. He is like David, the king, but he's also like Israel, the people. He, he rules over them, but he also represents them and stands in for them. He lives the way that they should have lived, the way we should live, serving and loving, obeying God. He will finally die the death that God's people deserve instead of us facing God's judgment. And so Matthew starts to show us Jesus as king and as representative. The third Old Testament reference foreshadows the horror and tragedy of Jesus' life. He will be a king, but he'll be opposed and killed. Herod's terrible, Herod's terrible slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem is, is like Pharaoh in Egypt. But Matthew says it's also like that event about which Jeremiah prophesied. Quoting in verse 17 from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, about the grief facing God's judgment, of facing God's judgment. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah is a town just north of Jerusalem, about the same distance north as Bethlehem was south. And so when the people of Jerusalem were taken in exile and started that long walk, forced march back to Babylon, Ramah was the first town through which they went after they left Jerusalem. And you can imagine the mothers in Ramah mourning as they see their sons being taken away. It also turns out to be near the grave of Rachel, Jacob's wife, who died in grief giving birth to Benjamin. And so Ramah is a name and a town that's full of grief and pain. Uh, Rachel, the mother of Israel, and the mothers of Israel in the exile mourn there. And so Matthew's saying the same thing again is happening in Bethlehem. This is not going to be an easy story. Yes, there's a new king, there's a new start, there's a new exodus, there's a new people, but there's also tears and pain and sorrow and death. Now, it might be that Matthew also wants us to remember the next few verses of Jeremiah 31. Let me read them to you. Having of, spoken of the weeping of the mothers in Ramah, Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And so Matthew is probably telling us this is a story of heartbreak, but also of hope. It's the grief of the experience of the judgment of God, but also the joy of God's salvation. And those, the events then are woven around those Old Testament texts and show us two contrasting responses to Jesus. The first one is Herod, obviously. He's troubled, and when he's troubled, all of Jerusalem is troubled. Because Herod, uh, we know, is 
mad and bad. This is the king who had his favorite wife and two of his sons executed on suspicion that they were plotting against him. He was a great builder. He built the temple. But he wasn't from the line of David. His mother was an Arabian. His father was an Idumean, which means he was descended from the people of Edom. And so when these men from the east turn up looking for a new king of Israel, a new king of the Jews, that's more than enough to get him worked up because he doesn't really have the right to claim to be a king of the Jews. And so he acts. He checks his facts with the priests and the scribes, uh, but he's not going to uh, let them know any more than is necessary. He actually secretly meets with the Magi, tells them to find the child so he can worship the child. Of course, that's not what he plans to do at all. The, the, the Lord protects Jesus, sends the Magi home a different way. Herod realizes his scheme has failed, and so he slaughters all the young boys in the town. He cannot bear the threat of God's king. The Magi themselves show us, of course, the other response to Jesus. They've followed the star. We're not sure exactly how. It doesn't really matter. But the point is that they've reached the goal that they were seeking. In biblical narrative, when the action slows down and there's a lot of detail and description, that's a strong emphasis. And so here, when the Magi reach Bethlehem, uh, Matthew could have said they found Jesus, they worshipped him and they left. But he really slows down the action and emphasises their response, especially uh, that description in verse 10. Um, the the, EI, the uh, NIV has, um, they were overjoyed. It's just, I, I love the way the emphasis uh, in, it comes through in the Greek. Uh, there's a verb, they rejoiced. But there's also the same noun, they rejoiced with joy. And then Matthew adds an adjective, they rejoiced with great joy, and an adverb, very much. So the ESV quite literally translates it, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, the message paraphrase captures a modern idiom, they could hardly contain themselves. That's it, they've made it. They're looking for a king. And here he is, and they're not disappointed by finding a poor family in a nondescript village. They somehow recognize just how wonderful this is, how wonderful he is. They've reached the goal of the journey. And they come into the house, they prostrate themselves before Jesus. They worship him. They open their treasure boxes and give him rich gifts. Why do they worship and rejoice and give? It's hard to work out there you know, how they would have known whatever it is they know. What, what would Persian astrologers or Babylonian astrologers make of a baby and a star and a prophecy? But Matthew uses it to, to give us this foreshadowing of who Jesus is. Herod's fear and opposition is the first hint that Israel's leaders will reject Jesus. I mean, he doesn't have any idea of how great a threat Jesus is. 
But his murderous opposition is the start of a pattern which leads finally to Jesus' death on the cross. And beyond the cross, the authorities are still threatened by Jesus. We see that through the book of Acts. God's true king turns out to be a threat to every false human authority. The more absolute and corrupt and evil a regime is, the greater the threat Jesus is to those rulers. And look at China just now. Over the last few decades, there's been a huge movement in China of people following Jesus. About, there's about 90 million members of the Communist Party in China, and there are now something like 70 million Christians in China. And an authoritarian state like China can't allow there to be more people who follow Jesus than members of the party. And so for the last few years, there's been more and more opposition and destruction of churches and prisoners, uh, pastors imprisoned. Because we shouldn't pretend Jesus is, or we shouldn't forget Jesus really is a threat to our hedonistic, individualistic society as well. So while Jesus is a threat and create, brings opposition, the Magi are the beginning of the other wonderful story. From outside of Israel, the most unexpected way, they come to worship Jesus. Now we actually don't meet many Gentiles in the book of Matthew, but here are the most surprising Gentiles right at the beginning of the story. And of course the gospel ends with the apostles sent into every nation to make disciples. They have worshipped Jesus and now they are to go out into the nations to bring people to worship him. And of course, we're part of that. We see that going on in history as the gospel has reached China, and Africa, South America and the Pacific. And what began with the Magi goes on. Opposition and worship that began with the Christmas story continues through history because Jesus is God's King and God's people. And so it's no wonder that this is a story that appeals to Christian imagination because it underlies how wide and rich and wonderful God's plan is. The way he sends Jesus and protects him and brings the nations to him. And so it's a story that Christians have always loved. T.S. Eliot, an English poet, wrote a moving reflection that he called the journey of the Magi. It goes like this. A cold coming we had of it. Just the worst time of the year for the journey and such a long journey the ways deep and the weather sharp the very dead of winter and the camel's galled sore-footed refractory lying down in the melting snow there were times when we regretted the summer palaces on slopes the terraces the silken girls bringing sherbet then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. 
At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness and three trees on the low sky and a white, old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing with pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information. And so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place it was, you may say, satisfactory. All this is a long time ago, I remember. And I would do it again, but set down, this set down. This. Were we led all the way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd make us uncomfortable because of the Christmas story. No longer at ease in the old dispensation. Now seeing the world uh, in which Jesus is the King and in which we are included in him and follow him, um, recognising his opposition, recognising the way he stirs up opposition and hatred, but for ourselves coming and offering our lives to him. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.